Hi Sean, thanks for coming today on my very first podcast. Uh, I can see you're inspecting the magic of fur. Yeah, it's like a it's like a marsupial from Australia. Okay, all right. And what is that? Like a koala or something? You don't know what a marsupial is? No. Oh, I'm gonna Wait. have to get you the official destination. Let me earmark that. Yeah. Let's start with you first. So, Sean. Thanks for coming today to my podcast, and it's my first podcast I've ever done in my life, and uh, uh, Sean is a good friend of mine who is now going to talk to me about life in Indonesia. Wow, the what good a topic. Things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, I guess. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of all three. There's a lot of good, there's a lot of bad, and there's a lot I think, of ugly. I think for the, for the purpose of keeping everything a little bit balanced, mm. we, sh we, should could, we, we should keep the good and the ugly balanced as well, I guess, yin-yang. Yeah, I agree. Because there's a lot of bad stuff here. I think around, it naturally right? does anyway. It, yeah, actually yeah. it does. And yeah, it, like eventually humans tend to kind of like level out, right? Or not just humans. Or, or you don't survive here for this long. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Those who think it's all bad and ugly, they're long gone. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's jump right into it. So tell us more about you, like when you started, where you started. And how well, you ended up uh, I'm probably relatively uh, a little bit of a newbie in Indonesia. I've only been living here uh, full time for eight years. Uh, but I've been working uh, predominantly in Indonesia since 2005. So unlike the majority of expats who are here, I don't work in kind of traditional corporate sectors or uh, I'm not one of the, um, one of the Bali expats. Um, <clears throat> I work in, uh, in international development, which is not uncommon, but specifically in education area. So um, uh, I run a research institute Uh, and uh, predominantly that's in areas of education, higher education, vocational education and training, but also have done quite a lot of work in other areas of development like uh, tobacco control, um, maternal mortality, um, uh, food sustainability and environmental sustainability as well. So a, a relatively broad collection of, um, of research capabilities. Interesting. Okay, so and then you basically started the business over here. I did. Um, I started a research institute back in 2013. Um, it was slow going at first, um, but it's been relatively stable for the last uh, last four or five years. Um, my clients are mostly uh, uh, state and federal governments in Australia and sometimes some other companies as well, uh, some other countries as well. I do some work for some uh, NGOs. Okay. And, um, and Australian or any NGO? Uh, no, actually, I've done a lot of work, uh, believe it or not, with India. Okay. Um, who, um, who collaborate on some projects where there are similar issues in India, like maternal mortality and like tobacco-related control and those okay. kinds of issues. Interesting. Okay, um, so, so you, and and with the, with some of the UN agencies as well, like uh, Red and some others. But currently, you kind of you're active in the educational sector. So yeah, we were always uh, relatively active in the education division. We we actually uh, we actually have a division entirely dedicated to education. Hmm. Um, so we support um, international universities um, in terms of both outbound and inbound student mobility. Um, And we also do a lot of sort of market entry and market-based research for, for international universities. Okay. And that's uh, basically something you now do as a main thing or, I mean, pre-COVID? 
What's the situation? Yeah, it's um, I I have had I've been lucky enough to have some substantial long term contracts with a consortium of universities in Australia, and I also now act uh, just recently. Actually, I started uh, only this week um, as a senior advisor to the ASEAN region for uh, one of the biggest universities in Australia, which is uh, which is Curtin University oh, Cur- in okay. in Perth. Right. Uh, Curtin's a university with around about 60,000 students yeah. spread across campuses in the Indian Ocean area. So Perth is their main campus in Western Australia. Um, they've also got campuses in Malaysia, uh, in uh, Mauritius, and in Singapore. Okay, that's uh, quite a large network. So here in Indonesia, you you do what exactly in order to like help students? That's what I. That's what I understand. Of, like yeah, I. I uh, my role is more to do with uh, with strategy mm. for those universities. Yeah. Um, so it's more in the space of ideas mm. and uh, and business development and research development. Uh, so research links government to government mm. kind of uh, work. Um, a lot of work in uh, connecting uh, the corporate sector and the industry sector. To universities as well, okay. um, so it's a relatively uh, diverse sort of areas of responsibility. In terms of the student space, um, there are different people who are actively involved in the recruitment of students and those kinds of things. Um, the work that I'm doing is is more uh, involved in partnerships. Uh, I'll be working on a feasibility study for the establishment of a campus here in Indonesia. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's already a very big campus uh, focused on engineering in Malaysia. And, and Curtin are looking towards the development of a campus here in Indonesia as well. Uh, and that's an example of some of the work that I'll be doing. Okay, cool. So jumping right into the good stuff. So what is it that, like, the number one thing, or like, give me a list of things that you really like over here. Yeah, it's a good question, you know. Um, Indonesia, uh, like any place where... Uh, where you don't necessarily know your way around so much. Um, it's filled with a lot of complications and it's easy to forget some of the wonderful aspects of this life. Number one is I think if you're, um, if you're the kind of person that, uh, that the idea of difference, you know, like the idea that every day can be filled with surprises yeah. and, uh, and different uh, and a place that continually keeps you on your toes, where where uh, rage and joy coexist in each day, um, then this is the place for you. Yeah. And I like that. Other than the natural environment of Indonesia, yeah. um, the diversity of Indonesia, the kind of diversity of culture and um, uh, and experiences that you get to have. Yeah. Um, just being somewhere different is something that. Uh, in my experience, you find people for whom it terrifies mm. and, uh, and they can't wait to get home to yeah. where things are safe and comfortable yeah. and familiar. It's not a place for the, for, it, it's not a safe space here. That's, that's for sure. No. It's, but in a sense, in a sense, I think it is, it is also very safe in terms of safety. Like um, compared to other developing countries, you can 
you can walk around at night over here without a problem. Uh, yeah, I, I find uh, I've, I've lived in, uh, I guess, 11 countries now around the world. Mm. And I, I certainly believe that Indonesia is one of the safest places I've ever experienced. Yeah, absolutely, I've, yeah. I've rarely felt um, in any kind of danger here. I've heard stories uh, from Manila. So Philippines seems to be quite a crazy place. They have a very um, liberal approach towards gun Gun laws? Yeah, I've, I've been to the Philippines a number of times, but I've not lived there. And, uh, and certainly the, your, your sense of well-being is a little bit uh, different in, in the Philippines uh, than in Indonesia. I actually lived in Africa for quite a while as well. Okay. And, um, and that's certainly at new levels. I mean, I lived in Botswana and the Seychelles. Those were two enormously safe yeah. places to be. Mm. But other parts of Africa, Kenya... Uh, Ghana, Nigeria, yeah. these kinds of places—they're—they're they're a little on the um, on the terrifying so side. So it's, at times. it's kind of safe over here, but not certain. That's that's basically, I think. It's a good way of describing it. It's uh, safe, but certainly not certain. There's a comedian uh, named Stephen Wright, and he's got a really interesting analogy. Uh, you know, have you ever swung back on your chair? You know, mm. like on the mm. back two legs. You know, one of the normal chairs, not some. Yeah, way yeah, back yeah, like yeah. this. I, I did this at school. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We like used to swing back years. on your chair. And you swing just a little bit too far mm -hmm. and you almost fall, but you catch yeah. yourself yeah, just yeah, in yeah, time. Yeah. That's what every day is like in Indonesia. True. In a <laughs> sense, it is. Yeah. It's kind of like uh, walking on the edge. Yeah, yeah. Sense. You're just, and, and for a lot of people, that's uh, an invigorating feeling. Mm. Um, for me, it is. I mean, when I came here 10 years ago, um, To me, it felt like Wild Wild West or Wild Wild East in that sense. Yeah, and you've been here longer than I have. Um, uh, I've only been living for eight years full time. Mm. Um, but certainly the changes since 2005 have been substantial. And, yeah. you know, when you have it, it, it's only when you kind of reflect on what life was like back then that you kind of uh, take it all in, in your stride and understand that a lot has changed. Primarily, I guess it comes down to the fact that the last 10 years were years of like boom, of progress, of uh, where Indonesia started to kind of like move forward economically and socially, I guess. Well, not necessarily socially, but economically for sure, right? Sure. And, and the interesting thing about that idea is we have concurrently lived in a decade that had both substantial growth and development, but also... Um, It's the space in which Indonesia hit um, the technology boom as well. Yeah. Where, uh, you know, the rapid expansion of access to information yeah. occurred in the, the 10 years that you and I were here. Yeah. Apps, yeah. you know, the mega apps and yeah. app yeah. development and the sort of space that you're more accustomed to working in. Um, and not just apps and, and sort of like the expansion of the digital economy, but... Um, But the majority of the population have had uh, accessible access to information, and that's changed the shape of Indonesia yeah, quite a lot as well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, like a practical example of that is the last 10 years, everyone who is six who is now 16 mm. is exceedingly more proficient in English language Yeah. than any generation that's preceded them. Yeah, yeah. Simply because they're connected to these devices that have given them YouTube and every other yeah. access to information. I so find, that's changed. I find the internet here is fairly... Um, there are certain restrictions which are kind of uh, very easy to circumvent. And then also um, 
laughable in its kind of um, uh, reasoning, right? So when you hear about... It's remarkably open, though. Yeah, yeah. it's remarkably open. Like, you yeah. have barely anything that you can't do. Like, uh, I can do a lot more than I could do in Germany. In Germany, you have to be a little bit careful. Uh, it's a bit more walking on eggshells, especially when it comes to downloading certain content. But over here, it's just it's just free. Like, I can do whatever I want, more or less. And there's never any fear of repercussion, right? So this is... Yeah, it's, it's... Things are relatively... Uh, free and transparent here of course the downside of that mm. is um that's not necessarily uh so good if you're the owner of intellectual property yeah of course uh, not yeah that's and uh, which i am actually and i do see my products and i have digital products that i'm selling yeah in the market in, in certain marketplaces and they're being repackaged or actually not even re repacked they're just uh, using stolen. My, yeah, stolen. They use my logo and, and everything. Appropriated. Appropriated. <laughs> they use it and sell it here on, on Tokopedia, which is the Indonesian equivalent of Amazon. And uh, I have to fall I have to manually shut them down. So I have to do um, I have to threaten them. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Not not with violence, not like I just have to say uh, take it down or else. You know? Yeah. And then and, they work. And there has been a lot of progress made in that space. Mm. Um Australia and Indonesia have recently signed uh, a comprehensive economic partnership agreement, yep. which is essentially a kind of free trade agreement, um, which has removed a lot of uh, tariffs that were in place uh, to strengthen the interactions between Australia and Indonesia. Yep. And, and a big part of that was uh, some provisions for uh, the protection of intellectual property. There's a funny side story I can uh, I can tell you. Um, a couple of years ago, Bill Gates came over and spoke with the president in order to address a few issues around that topic. Hmm. And um, there was this uh, finding by an international security analytics group that figured out that most attacks, DDoS um, attacks on servers or on infrastructure around the world, like mostly in the US, but also Europe, originated from Indonesia. So you would think, okay, Indonesia mm. is a very, um, it's a place full of hackers. No, it is actually a place full of hacked hardware, uh, probably hacked by Chinese or other uh, uh, countries. And they, 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 like these machines are used in so order to, uh, to carry out- Indonesia is somewhat of an intermediary in this space. Yeah, right, un okay. un un unknowingly. So that's, uh, that's the story. And mainly simply because um, when you, back then, when you didn't up, like, um, register or kind of uh, uh, unlock your windows um, uh, or activate your windows you uh, like these machines became prone to attacks right mm. uh, so all these back doors were wide open and hackers could just walk in and install all these uh, Trojans and mm. uh, uh, malware which then could be used in order like to carry out yeah, yeah. attacks around the world and that basically sparked like almost like an international crisis because Indonesia mm. was like a it was like a hornet's nest of mm. like attacks and like, but Indonesians didn't know about this. You know? Right. So, and you know, it's uh, one of one of the one of the aspects of Indonesia that I appreciate so much actually is that um, despite the enormous size of Indonesia. Now, for those who who haven't been to Indonesia or who have perhaps only travelled to Bali, yeah. they might uh, they might not quite understand just how huge the archipelago is. Yeah. I mean, it stretches some five or six thousand kilometers from east to west. Yeah. Uh, Thirty-four provinces, is it? Yeah. Um, I, I've been to almost all of the provinces in Indonesia, and um, and it it has surprised me how uh, how rapidly Indonesia has deployed um, access to information in most of the yeah. 
the parts of the archipelago. There, there are still a few places yeah. where you can only just get 3G kind of access. Even as far as some of the remote islands in Maluku yeah. that I've been to that uh, still have got reasonable 3G access. Yeah. Maybe not LTE or sort of a broader band access. Yeah. But surprisingly, um, the infrastructure here, and it's like many developing countries, it kind of leapfrogged. Um, there it's weren't a lot yeah. of cables, and yeah, there yeah. was never going to be the infrastructure for cables, so yeah, everything yeah. went directly to yeah. to cellular. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was definitely a leapfrogging experience uh, for me as well. Like, I was surprised in the beginning. Initially, it was uh, awful. Like internet was pretty awful, but like the way it developed, especially around 2011 until 2015, was remarkable. Like that was like every time I returned to Germany. Uh, using my cell phone would be just a horrible experience, like yeah. compared to over here, right? Here you can, I watch HD TV on my phone and I pay a month maybe 10, 15 euros or dollars. It's sure, exactly. Yeah. And the same uh, is certainly the subscription. And that's one of the luxuries that Indonesia enjoys. Mm. It has um, uh, hundreds of millions of phone subscribers yeah and the capacity for that yeah uh, and and that that brings with it economies of scale yeah. competition um, and also I think the the you know I've done a little bit of work with the Ministry of Communications and Information yeah. and they have a multi-trillion um, rupiah program for infrastructure development and I think we'll see the rapid deployment of, uh, of 5g yeah um, sooner than later I say let's call this part one. <laughs> part two we have to do inside because we're going to get hammered with tropical rain, I think, any second. Do you see this yeah, cloud? We can, uh, for those of us who have been here long enough, of course, you can feel it coming, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, you can definitely um, feel it coming. I can already see it coming. Yeah. So there's a huge uh, wall of rain moving yes. moving towards us. And uh, so, we're a little bit exposed here, so we might, yeah. uh, we might get a shower, but let's keep yeah. going. Let's um, keep going. Do you want to take yeah. the risk? Okay, so this is part two of our uh, podcast number one. Uh, we had to jump inside and uh, now we're going to talk about, I guess... Where were we up to? It's rainy season and we, uh, yeah. we got to watch a beautiful sheet or wall of rain yeah. uh, slowly make its way towards us. Yeah, well, I mean, I live up here in the mountains. It's uh, 1,200 meters or no, 1,000 meters. It's pretty much exactly 1,000 meters above sea level here. When the clouds roll in, you can literally like see them coming and then you can set your watch to like two minutes, five minutes and you know exactly it's going to come down. Which is, and this year's been nice. We haven't had a good rainy season for a few years now. Okay, yeah. This year was pretty wet, I'd say. Yeah, well. it's been a wet year this year, but, um, but the last sort of uh, three years at least haven't been particularly wet at all. Do you think so? I think 2015. Yeah, we, 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 we missed a year of rain almost entirely. In it 2015 was, it was, yeah. right? I think 2018. Was it? Yeah. Because I remember 2015, we had these amazing, <laughs> well, quote unquote, amazing uh, peat fires, peatland fires in uh, Sumatra. Yeah. Those, or, was that, or was that 2016? Well, those have been regularly, they, they've had uh, a big one of those, you know, for, I think their first one was in 2014 or 13. Yeah. Um, and I read a few years ago the UN report on those wildfires, there were an estimated 100,000 deaths oh. attributed entirely, and that they were Indonesian deaths only, mm. uh, attributed to those fires. 
Um, the the most recent health. ones. Due to health, I guess. Uh, yeah, most of them were related to respiratory um, complications associated with that. Yeah. Um, at the time, uh, Indonesia um, was the only country in the world uh, in which um, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease (COPD) mm -hmm. was the leading cause of preventable death. Yeah, I know That's someone. I know someone from the so-called Fire Free Alliance. Hmm. Uh, it's a project set up here in Indonesia, um, uh, ironically, along with some with some palm oil companies. Oh no, hmm. wait, not palm oil companies. Like a big player in um, in textile uh, source material production, which is made, right. which is made from these trees. I forgot the name. But the interesting thing about that project is is that um, they instead of instead of using punishment. They uh, used incentives for uh, locals to um, put out fires before they, come, uh, before they become big. <clears throat> and I think that's the, um, that's the key in Indonesia, is the same kind of uh, rules of law and order. Yeah. Um, they don't really exist so much. So now segueing into the bad or the ugly of Indonesia. So what is the... Well, you, I think you just kind of touched on it on one of the points of it there, and that was the issue of the forest fires. Hmm. Um, when you first, uh, the first few years that you're here in Indonesia, I think you tend to focus on the individual issues, the small issues, yeah. the, the irritants, the things that just make you want to tear your hair out and scream, the yeah. traffic, the burning of the trash every day. Yeah. Um, and I, I kind of used to put them into a box that says, um, this problem is eminently solvable without having to do anything. When I, when I, I read a report uh, several years ago, I lived in Jakarta when I first came. So I moved to Jakarta and only moved after the first uh, two or three years to Bandung from, from Jakarta. Um, I still commute to Jakarta every week to work um, for a few days, but it's an intolerably inhumane city to yeah. base your life. Yeah. Um, Uh, during this crazy COVID pandemic, things are a little bit quieter. Um, but I read a report, some, uh, some researchers um, used satellite imagery and other kind of information systems to look at the traffic problems. Where were the problems? And the interesting outcome of that was that 70% of all of the traffic problems were solvable without any money or infrastructure development. They were behavior-made problems. Mm. They were eminently solvable. And my biggest frustration in Indonesia are not the problems that require more money than Indonesia's got to solve them, but my, uh, my biggest frustration are the problems that are eminently solvable just with action. Yeah. Um, and one of those is the burning of trash. Yeah. Um, the burning of uh, rice husks, for instance. Mm. Uh, when you, you know many other uh, international jurisdictions value add those rice husks and turn them into feedstock for livestock or yeah. other value added projects, um, uh, and here they're just slashed, put into big piles and burnt, yeah. um, which covers most of the nation in that uh, in that particular season with um, clouds of intolerably dangerous smoke. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and likewise with just domestic trash. Yeah. The custom in Indonesia is to take um, all of the trash that is plastic or paper or, uh, and burn it. Mm. 
Mm. Um, and it's technically illegal yeah. in some parts, like it is in Bandung, but it's common practice. It's a predicament for especially remote areas. There's no trash management. Correct. Yeah. Um, and the solutions for those things, um, um, I, I believe that there's probably um, cost-effective ways of managing waste mm. that are not going to require massive investments. I think there are probably some industries around waste, and we've started to see those emerge. In my neighborhood, uh, I have someone come and collect yeah. everything that's recyclable. There, plastic, is, a, there is a certain degree of recycling going on here. Um, oh, plastic, yeah. plastic, I mean, not all sorts of plastic, but plastic bottles are collected. They are being recycled. Actually. And cardboard. Yeah, cardboard. Uh, we, yeah. we separate cardboard and plastic, put yeah. it into a pile, um, and an older lady comes by the house to pick it up. Yeah. Um, and she sells it. She on-sells it. And it's an, a cottage industry uh, for her. Would be quite interesting to figure out whether the degree of recycling over here is actually higher than in the West. It may be higher. But the problem is because a lot of trash is not being recycled or managed properly, it becomes so visual. Like it, you see it everywhere. So you think it's a very trashed up. And it, it is a trashed up place. Like, uh, don't, don't get me wrong. Like yeah, you yeah. See it it's trashed everywhere. up. Yeah. There's but piles of trash everywhere. Yeah. And, and then when you see the dump sites, it's just, it just looks like uh, from a horror movie, like a scene from a horror movie where you think uh, this will never, this, <laughs> this is unsolvable. Yeah. Um, well, it's estimated that 500 tons. Mm. And I think a, a part of this, when you look at the complex problems, uh, the longer you hear, the the more you start to look at them in a historical, sort of political um, context. If you think about um, Indonesia, even 50 years ago, um, food packaging was largely banana leaves, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you would take that food packaging and you would throw it down a ravine yeah. and it would make its way back into the ecosystem yeah, from where exactly. it came. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the... Uh, the way that uh, traditional food was packaged was banana leaves or some yeah. other leaf. Um, and it had a bamboo skewer going through it yeah. or a grass kind of skewer. Yeah. And it was fine to throw that down a ravine. It, yeah, or just it just ended up behind the house. So nowadays sure. when you go through those kampongs, you see the same thing behind the house, but Piles it's just plastic. Of plastic. Yeah, yeah, it's plastic. So um, they treat plastic the same as, as banana as leaves. As they had always done with yeah. uh, biodegradable yeah. packaging. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the one solution or one idea of a solution may be to make our packaging biodegradable. Well, correct. And, yeah. and this is where I think Indonesia will have to arrive at. I don't mm. think that the, I think that that's a more achievable solution than, uh, than waste management is going to be. Yeah, because, mm. There's this word which uh, uh, I always love saying um, is, is, is a word that doesn't work in Indonesia, which is management. So waste management requires management, and at that point it already falls apart, so it doesn't work. Correct. Yeah. Or, or large-scale coordination. Mm. And I think what we've seen from Jokowi um, in the last, the president of Indonesia in the last few years, uh, particularly given his second term, is he has um, come to the realization that he has to devolve more and more of Indonesia's development to the private sector. Yeah. So we've seen this transition from uh, areas that I'm involved in, like um, uh, skills training and development. They've created tax incentives, a uh, 200% uh, um, tax incentive for industries to, to take control of 
training and development. Yeah. Um, same with research and development, a 300% tax uh, rebate for that to occur. Yeah. I think that the private sector, particularly the food producers, they require regulation to have control over packaging. Yeah. It's unsustainable the way that it is. Absolutely. And it's not only, it's, it's a global problem. Indonesia's waste is a problem for uh, the world. Yeah. Um, and it's a very real problem for uh, Australia, a near neighbour, for instance. There's a big resort in, off the coast of the Northern Territory that had to shut down because it was inundated with 12 tonne a month of yeah. plastic waste from Indonesia. Yeah. Um, so this is a this is a global problem. Yeah, these pictures, uh, and, and these pictures, problem. these pictures are like going around uh, divers in Bali uh, swimming through garbage, basically. So yeah, I mean, I've, I was in Lombok last year, and I've got uh, a video that I like to show people of of uh, uh, the amount of trash in Sengigi Bay in the mm. beach there. Yeah, um, just flowing into the from from the river outlets that are there. Mm. It comes from high up makes its way down and just pours into that river. Yeah. You literally could not go on a boat from Sengigi up to the Gili Islands. You couldn't go more than a meter without seeing plastic waste yeah. Yeah. through yeah. the island. A devastating scenario. It's, it's, quite, it's quite awful. And um, I mean, in Bali, there's some sort of, there's some level of management I've heard. What, do you know anything about it? I was in Bali just recently and um, uh, Listen, I, I think it's probably better. There are some policies, for instance, like uh, there are no plastic bags and no plastic straws allowed in yeah, Bali. Yeah. But it, it hasn't stopped the waste making its way onto the beaches. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bali is too geographically small to have a large-scale and sustainable impact on plastic yeah, waste. Yeah. And there are still many other forms of plastic waste. And the right. real problem is packaging, you know, like... Yeah. Um, my experience has been that the plastic bag thing is a, a bit of a false, uh, false flag in many senses. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because my experience is that people tend to keep plastic bags and reuse them again. Yeah. They, uh, there was certainly a lot of them getting trashed, mm. but, uh, but my experience of traveling around Indonesia for a long time is, it's, is, package, is, is packaging is packaging, the culprit. Packaging, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and Shampoo bottles and the, you yeah. know, the one-use kind yeah, of yeah. plastic squeezy things, yeah, one, yeah. one cup of coffee in one separate yeah, package. Yeah, so the things, and, yeah. the things you can buy here, quite interestingly, like they're a lot smaller than, for example, in the West. So one you use, use, yeah. Yeah, so you use them like once or th like three times or five times and then you chuck them away and it's like it's, everywhere, it's, like these small shampoo bottles or It's indicative bottles. of the, the coffee. You'll see in yeah. Kampongs here the, the, um, the perforated edges of mm. one package. One, you go and buy one pack of, of, of coffee for one cup, one yeah. single use of shampoo or yeah. soap or mm. one cigarette. Yeah. Um, and, and this is commonplace throughout Indonesia because for a large proportion of the vulnerably employed in Indonesia, mm. you eat and consume what you earned today. Yeah, And exactly. that's what's made uh, COVID a particularly uh, difficult challenge for Indonesia yeah. and shutting down. It's interesting um, to think about this in a behavioral way. So I see cars, I like driving around where trash is flying out of the window like all the time. It's not every day. It, I mean, it's something that happens in the West as well. I mean, you see trashed up um, um, side skirts at, and, and, and like rural areas as well, right? Where yeah. truckers like throw their trash out of the window as well. But here it, it literally happens anywhere. And sometimes I see cars stopping by a, a trash bin mm. and just dumping their stuff in there, like their household trash in, in the middle of a road. 
Sure. Because either they have to pay for it in order to get rid of it, or they have to burn it in front of their house, so they don't want that either, so they kind of carry it somewhere else. Do you pay for waste management here? We pay, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's part of uh, the resort. I pay as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So in resorts or in sort of controlled or managed um, clusters... Or, what do you think happens with it? Well, it ends up in the same space like... In a landfill or yeah, gets burned? Yeah, well, in a landfill, it well, partially recycled. They, these yeah. trucks over here, these trucks are fascinating. They're kind of like driving little recycling machines, right? They have like yeah. these three or four or five guys sitting on the top and then just sifting through your trash and like trying mm. to find anything reusable. And sorting it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. sorting it out and then selling it on or... Um, what I know is that a lot of um, companies here that produce that produce plastic, they mm. they uh, recycle plastic as well. So they yeah. kind of turn it into pellets and then use it for lower grade plastic yeah. applications. Now you're from Germany, and I, I've I've, uh, I've um, my uh, my brother's uh, living in Switzerland and has got a house in Germany mm. across the border yeah. in the Bodensee. and uh, I'm always intrigued when I go there. There's industrial scale incentivization for recycling lots of things in Indonesia in Germany right yeah uh, glass bottles particularly you yeah. you pick them up and you take them to the supermarket and there's these automated machines right you throw yeah. the glass in there and it returns you dollars or credit on your well that's for um, bottles with uh, where you get money for it like you, you so there are bottles with refund and those without refund right okay and uh, those without like wine bottles for example we have these special containers for white, brown, and green glasses where you then chuck them in. And uh, that's, hmm. I don't know exactly how they can reuse it. What I know is, is that if there's only a single green bottle in a brown bottle container, the whole thing is fucked. So, right. yeah. Um, it, yeah. But, but that's a different topic. Um, recycling here uh, is, is definitely not at the same level like, like other countries. But I, I think the point uh, that I was making is that I think that you have to, uh, you have to create uh, financial incentives for recycling. Yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah. that that's the way, create a market for it. Yeah. And it has to be a, a market-based solution here. Um, well, as soon as, soon as money exchange uh, hands, um, you have a situation where often things try, people trying to take shortcuts, right? So sure. if, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I've been th I've been thinking about this as well before. Uh, would it work to have this kind of refund system uh, here in Indonesia, like we have in Germany? I what don't. Do you think? I don't necessarily think that that would work, but I think um, I think I think it's one of those issues that requires. Um, the government to implement regulations, put yeah. regulation in place, and then let the market determine the solutions for that. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think the big um, consumer uh, companies, the Unilevers and the others, I don't think that they're doing enough. Yeah. Indo Foods, those things, I don't think they're doing enough um, to deal with the issue of waste. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think the government needs to step in, uh, define the parameters that will dramatically minimize, uh, minimize the amount of waste mm. and then let the market determine that. Well, I mean, that sounds too good to be true, which is a perfect segue into the other part of Indonesia that is not so nice. <laughs> so whenever the government is trying to fix something, it often makes things worse. So, i.e. corruption, right? So like in this, in this scenario, I can imagine like you would put these new regulations in place mm. and then um, someone would pay off someone else in order to uh, mm. to alter certain laws in order to make like leaving leaving back doors open for yeah. for producers to to 
go with yeah. liquidity. When, I, when I'm talking to groups of students, particularly when I engage quite frequently as I do with prospective PhD students, mm. um, uh, one of the questions that I like to ask sort of Indonesian, young Indonesian people who are engaged in the process of determining a future career that's about solving some of these big national problems. Yeah. I like to ask them um, if they were to list the top five um, big picture problems that Indonesia faces, what would they be? So I want to pose the same question to you. You've been here for 10 years. Mm. What are the five biggest problems that Indonesia has got to solve? Um, well, a lot of problems kind of um, are intertwined with each other, right? So if you, sure. if you, solve, Absolutely true, if you yeah. only try to solve one, it'll not work if you don't solve the others, right? So Correct, yeah. first figuring out uh, a sort of map uh, to kind of follow, th to, un to unpack all this and then uh, sequentially or in parallel work it all off. One would be definitely education. So, and that's something Indonesia has been working on before, right? Like they have like one of the highest uh, teacher per capita rate in the world, yet the performance is quite, uh, um, yeah, well, underwhelming. <laughs> yeah, do you know about PISA? That yeah. PISA is the UNESCO um, international benchmarking of performance of students' capabilities in yeah. um, in maths, science, reading, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Indonesia is it continues to perform poorly. Yeah. Uh, like in the bottom five percent. Okay. Uh, in terms of competencies in education, now uh, a, a lot of people are surprised by that because the biggest cities tend to do quite well, but of course. Um, it's aggregated across all the provinces. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and that's, that's absolutely right up there with my top five as well because a lot of solutions will stem from uh, the resolution of, uh, of improvements in education. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So I think that uh, education is one of those uh, great enablers. It will solve uh, or yeah. contribute towards the resolution of yeah. many other problems. Yeah, so yeah. education one, what's number two? Number two, um, huh. so it's like standing in front of a forest, like pick a tree, right? So that's kind of like how I yeah, see yeah. it. It's just a mountain of problems. Um, uh, and so I guess the question is, which are the biggest five trees? The um, biggest five trees, definitely education is number one. Yeah. Uh, number two would be, um, well, you can't, like, is, is corruption a tree? Not really, right? It's no, the, absolutely. It's uh, the it's the it's the fungus underneath, right? Yeah, no. It's um. However, you want to um, uh, create a metaphor or analogy out of it, yeah. it's definitely one of the issues. Yeah. Um, because you know one of the impediments to solving all the others, of yeah. course, is yeah. uh, is corruption. Mm. It um, you know, earlier on this morning uh, over text when you sent me something, I mentioned um. Uh, the efficient grease theory yeah, uh, yeah, or hypothesis, yeah. Yeah. Um, and Fadlizon is uh, is um, I think is deputy speaker of the house now. Yeah. But uh, not many people are also aware that Fadlizon is also Indonesia's representative uh, in an organisation called GOPEC, which is um, uh, like an organisation for um, the global organisation for parliamentarians against corruption. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yet his association with corruption is um, 
It's relatively <laughs> plentiful. And of course, we're, we're very cautious about what we say on this subject. But, um, but he was famous uh, for once saying that, uh, what do you want? Do you want um, no development and no corruption? Or do you want a little bit of corruption and some development? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and sort of suggesting that corruption is the grease that oils the machine of development. Yeah. It's realpolitik, if you think about it, right? So you can't just be uh, naive and think, okay, we just stamp out corruption and then everything's going to be fine. It's not going to work. Correct. And, I, and listen, I think that, that, um, uh, that perpetrators of corruption love to quote this uh, mm. hypothesis, yeah, an yeah. idea saying yeah, that, yeah. you know, well, corruption is essential to development. Absolutely, well, of yeah. course yeah. they believe that. The reality is I don't subscribe to that model. Yeah. Um, I think that, um, that at, at almost every level, um, it is the most substantial um, hindrance to development yeah. and democracy and peace and stability yeah. and sustainability in Indonesia. Yeah, I mean, and good, we have proof, to deal with it. good proof of that is actually those few years where Jokowi and Ahok were ruling Jakarta. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, Ahok had to had to had to go. Um, but in these years, uh, corruption was sort of like pushed down. It was very hard to get into a government job the, us the, the usual yeah. way with bribes. It didn't work. You had to actually qualify. You had to pass tests. And yes. then in that period of time... A concurrent boom in development, right? Like Jakarta was yeah. moving forward. Yes. Like yeah, things yeah. were like easing Progress. Off. Yeah, it was... Yeah. Pro like you could watch it with your own Plans, eyes. Plans, like yeah. um, dealing with the flooding, um, dealing with public transportation and a range of these things. You know, yeah. like uh, and many other areas that were well-developed and yeah. stuff like that. Yes, certainly. So And um, I, there, are, there are many examples of it. Um, but unfortunately, um, there's a powerful vested interest in corruption continuing. Yeah. Um, and Ahok was, uh, you know, much has been written in the international academic media and local media about um, about the Ahok uh, period of time. Yeah. Uh, and the reality is he, he was um, perhaps the greatest obstacle to the continuation of the oligarchs and the ruling classes sort of... Um, and the continuation of corruption. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and he had to go. I mean, so if you ask me, okay, what, what is the second tree, uh, second biggest tree, then if you, would, if, you would, if you want to point a finger at it, it would be Jakarta. Because, I mean, there's the saying, like, a, a fish stings from the head, right? Um, if you have a city, like, for example, Solo, or other cities that are actually well-managed and clean, those are those can become like examples for 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 the entire region or mm. the entire country. Now, Jakarta is a very bad example. So I think if you if you would fix Jakarta, that would uh, create some sort of knock-on effect on mm. on the rest of the country to kind of like pull up the straps and get things clean cleaned and, up. Now, and now of course, the plans up. are underway. Of course, to relocate. Um, Jakarta, the, yeah. the, the capital. Uh, well, not relocate Jakarta, but relocate the capital yeah. to Kalimantan. Well, that's not a solution. That's just just running away from the problem. And then Jakarta will still be the, the largest city in, yeah. in Indonesia. But do you think, I mean, I mean uh, the initial plans put it at somewhere in the order of 2 million people mm. uh, transmigrating uh, from Jakarta uh, to Kalimantan. But do you think um, symbolically it could have some effect in terms of the machine of government having a fresh start in a fresh location. Sure. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, you can always uh, buy a new PC if your old one doesn't work properly anymore, right? So that in, in that sense, yeah, it mm. could work. You could um, uh, undo a lot of, uh, uh, what's the English word for, for a fur ball full of, uh, you know, what, what cats are playing with? What's yeah, it called? Uh, well, cats get a fur ball when they eat too much oh, fur no, sorry, and they cough yeah. it up. No, yeah, yeah, uh, that's a fur ball. Well, that's, that's what Jakarta is. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, a ball know. of wool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so in a sense, uh, what, what the government is trying to do, they're trying to get like a, like a tabula rasa, right? Like a clean table and then yeah. start orderly and at least to get the governance of the country in, in check, so to say, right? Because right now in Jakarta, it's just a, it's just a disaster, right? Because like business, other interests, military, every, everything is just cramped together and it's sort of working but in my eyes Jakarta is a zombie it's just yeah a well weird, it's not my place. It's, it's by no means my favorite part of um of Indonesia but there has also been some remarkable progress in some parts of it mm. uh I I go walking at night after work in Jakarta and when I first arrived you just couldn't walk anywhere yeah. there was no place you could walk Now there are like international standard pedestrian ways okay. that cover large parts of big central Jakarta. At least central uh, Jakarta. Yeah, central Jakarta. Of yeah. course, you know, getting into those kinds of places. But the, the MRT, of course, yeah. is great. I use it all the time. I yeah. take public transportation. The MRT is great, walk. yeah. Absolutely, uh, yeah. So there's been some progress in that place. And it's a more, uh, it's a more livable place than it was beforehand. Yeah, yeah. Um, But yes, yeah, certainly, uh, m my view about corruption is that um, that it will get to the point. I, I think that the point about Jakarta is that um, is this this idea that I stumbled across many years ago called environmental anarchapitalism, sort of this philosophical term mm. that kind of describes an economic survival of the fittest. Yeah, and. In many respects, I think that nature will determine or is already determining what will happen with Jakarta. Um, we know that it's sinking large yeah. parts of it. Yeah. Uh, and if you look at the substance map uh, of, the, of Jakarta and you mm. see the levels that are sinking quite rapidly, yeah, and yeah. in some instances, five meters over the course of the last 30 years, yeah. um, I think what will eventually happen is... Um, is the citizens will speak. So, soil compression due to water extraction, right? Exactly. Yeah. So um, there's no scheme water. Mm. Uh, so everyone digs a well and they mm. suck water out of the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And in some instances, like the towers, mm. um, they're, they're sucking out literally thousands and thousands of liters an hour yeah, yeah. Uh, for cooling towers yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. alone. Uh, for old, inefficient cooling towers in, in Jakarta. And while, everyone while, has to... While simultaneously sinking into... into yeah, well, of the, course, the, it's the not one aquifer. Um, yeah. The, the um, subsidence under the ground is like these uh, pockets of soil and then pockets of aquifers and pockets of soil. Yeah. And, of course, when you suck uh, the water out of those things, the soil collapses and it just keeps uh, coming down. Yeah. Um, of course, that coupled with uh, rises in sea levels, yeah. uh, which has already flooded parts of North yeah. Jakarta, as yeah, it yeah. is, um, and air quality that's just not sustainable and people yeah. will evacuate yeah. uh, of their own accord because, uh, you know, I've got, I've got friends and colleagues who left Jakarta um, simply because they couldn't breathe anymore. Uh, yeah. And it was... Well, air, air, like air quality is pretty bad. Just recently they opened a new... A coal power plant nearby not in Jakarta like outside Jakarta and uh, in the planning they didn't consider winds 
So despite the, lock, despite the lockdown in March, April this year here in Jakarta, air quality, like worldwide, air quality went up. Like it, it got a lot better, especially yes, like in yeah. India. Like Improved, you, yes. You could, yeah. see, you could see Mount Everest again from, from India. Like, like remarkable photos went around the internet. Yeah, right? from Nepal. Too. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, amazing. Except Jakarta. Like in Jakarta, air quality went down despite no traffic. So that's, and that's primarily due to these new uh, like power plants nearby or that one particular yeah. power plant nearby. So coal, so environment, like if you ask me, okay, education, corruption, the third one would be, yeah, uh, like increase the standard for environmental protection. That would be a big, like a big plus for the country because they've, I mean, they've done it. Like um, the fishing ministry, they kind of improved the entire situation around fishing. Um, to make it more sustainable to instead of like just fishing off the entire archipelago it's now um, a lot more restricted they can't mm. just um, do the crazy fishing they used to do for like 50 years or even longer and now and now the kind of fish uh, the fish stocks going up actually around Indonesia surprisingly right. yeah I mean, interesting yeah. Uh, well I read recently that Indonesia has got the uh, the most biodiversity of marine life of any country in yeah. the world. Yeah, it's um, just due to the uh, 17,000 yeah. islands. So you yeah. have a lot of opportunity for life to kind of like live nearby the shores because that's the ideal place to live at, right? Yeah, still a lot of threat. But but certainly um, certainly dealing with the environment is um, is a major issue. Yeah. Uh, and on that point, I think you kind of answered one of my other questions with this issue of the environment. I think that it will ultimately take um mechanisms of international pressure at mm. the moment um the international community is uh is largely taking the position that it needs to be a cooperative partner with indonesia yeah and yeah. um and it needs to build local capacity it needs to do a whole lot of things to improve the direction in which it's heading yeah and um and that's certainly the view of australia and there's been some like magnificently successful projects in this space that I've yeah. um, witnessed or been a part of, um, projects like the the Empowerment of Women project, projects in education, uh, projects around infrastructure for regional development in the eastern part of Indonesia, um, this fantastic uh, road infrastructure that was built from Mataram up the sort of western coast of Lombok, mm. uh, which gave birth to a whole lot of um, hospitality and tourism projects along that area right up to Bangsal Port um, and infrastructure was the key so there's been a lot of success stories and we're in that phase but I think it will my take on this is that it will eventually get to the point mm. um, where we move to more punitive measures because mm. the stakes will become so high yeah. and, I, and I'm referring mostly to the areas of energy and uh, carbon emissions and deforestation yeah. and ocean sustainability, yeah. right? Those those kinds of main environmental um, flashpoints of sort of catastrophe. And I think it will probably uh, go one of two ways. Either Indonesia will recognize that this is going to get them into, uh, that this is unsustainable in themselves, for themselves, for their own sort of national security. Um, or it may get to the point where the international community impose hardcore sanctions on those who mm. continue to um, promulgate um, environmental sort of catastrophes like large 
swathes of deforestation. I was hiking last weekend. I've got a question on this point. Um, I took with me a map of the uh, Taman Nasional Halimun Selat, Mm. one of the biggest national parks uh, in Indonesia. And I took the, the map with me and I was confused about the rapid rate of development into the national park zone. Resorts, hotels, camping sites, villas, all now built inside the national park boundary. Restaurants, warungs, communities, farming projects, all these things built within the... So I'm wondering, and and I've seen this in other places. You see it in um, in, uh, um, Bromo Tengasenarum National Park in East Java. Uh, and other parts as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm But is a national is a national park the same a, as a nat- as a natural reserve? Uh, I, I don't know the answer to the to the rules and regulations. Because that, that would make a difference, right? Because of course, as you know it uh, now, Germany I've recently read has thirty uh, percent of its landmass mm. is designated national parks, protected national parks. Oh, is that um, that much? I thought. Yeah, it's high. It's high. It's it, uh, France, I think, is around twenty-five percent. Yeah. Um, so it's it's particularly high. Mm. Indonesia is uh, is way less than ten percent, but only about three percent if you take the marine protected areas out mm. of the equation. Oh, so if you take these. So it's very it's very low in terms of the land area. Yeah, yeah. So there's not much of it left either. Mm, yeah. Um, and and the areas of protected uh, wildlife on Java Island is minuscule, it's mm. tiny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, especially Java. I mean, Java is overpopulated, right? So that's not a secret. No, and, and so I'm wondering, um, who's responsible for protecting the protected areas? Yeah. And how are they doing this? Are there yeah. licenses that are issued to kind of... Well, um, yeah, I guess, I mean, I guess it comes or down Or are they to all the, illegal? It comes down to the same thing, like uh, greasing, right? So you grease hands and then suddenly you have a few hectares of land on a formerly Protected area. In a national protected yeah. park area. Um, and, you know, from the area where I, uh, I leave to go trekking, and, and it's a long trek. It's from, uh, it's from the, the Bogor side of Taman National, Halimun Salak, all the way across the reserve mm. uh, to, um, to Sukabumi side. Yeah. So it's quite a, a long way. And um, I frequently come across poachers in that trek. Oh, really? Um, and just two, week, uh, two weekends ago, um, I stumbled across four guys who were hunting in that area. Um, I believe it was for the pangolin Are you, area. Uh, they, so they wouldn't give me much information. They said they're just taking moss, but they had these big bags that were, were filled with uh, obviously wildlife. Oh, really? Mm. So they were not shooting uh, boars, like wild boars, which is no, kind of common. I, no, no, they, they were, were definitely sh- they were, These were small. Mm, okay. They were inside a bag and they were, but I saw one of the big bags and there was definitely something that was alive inside of it so they would um, they would sell them off on these animals on the black market, market. Black yeah. market. Oh, now okay. pangolins um, you know what pangolins are yeah, yeah. these small scaled kind of anteater type uh, mammals that are there um, they have um, they've intercepted gangs of people in Sukabumi before and there was an estimated I read somewhere um, 33,000 of these things that are have allegedly been sort of sold off on the black market yeah. uh, 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 mostly to China, yeah. um, who believe that there is some sort of medicinal value in the scales of the pangolin. Well, there was this one story about where China was trying to push the blame over to, to Indonesia to these pangolins uh, originating like 
the or kind of like causing the entire outbreak of 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 the coronavirus. And there is some there is some uh, some legitimacy to that story actually yeah. because um, are they carriers? Do they carry? Yeah, definitely. And in fact, um, they um, uh, they sequenced the DNA structure of. Um, this particular coronavirus, the, the um, CoV-SARS-2 virus mm. um, that causes COVID-19. Mm. And um, it was a 99% match for the coronavirus that is found in Sunda Pangolin. Mm. Um, so the question is, is that 1% enough to... Well, uh, like, I, I, don't, I don't know that we, uh, we're certain about the origins of that, but one of the things that we do know is that um, the lack of control on trading in illegal yeah, wildlife absolutely. is a massive problem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I occasionally, I've got some great video of stumbling across uh, um, different sort of uh, uh, primate species in that area, mainly uh, the Javan Lutung and the Silvery Gibbons as well. And they're horrendously endangered. Mm. Uh, one pair occupies an area of land that's about 60 square kilometers. Did you know that um, Silvery Gibbons uh, one pair of silvery gibbons occupy uh, territorially an, an area of about 66 square kilometers. Okay. So, so there are, uh, one estimate suggests that it's unlikely that the Javan silvery gibbons will survive the next decade. Wow. They're that endangered, critically endangered. Okay. And that's devastating. You know, it's devastating um, habitat loss, uh, poaching, a range of other things. Uh, <clears throat> It's ultimately um, Indonesia's environmental sustainability is at the top of my top five list yeah, yeah, because yeah. I think it will ultimately determine the sustainability of every other aspect of Indonesia for the next uh, generations to come. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Well, I mean, so where do we go from here? Like, how does Indonesia move forward? What, like, what do you think? I mean, we know the problems. We also know the beauty. Like I, I for example, I think one of the m most amazing things here is the climate. Sure. Like for me, like the reason for me coming back here and enjoying it so much yeah. was just just the weather. I mean, you and I have consistently marvelled. Now we live in an area that's quite spectacular. Mm. Um, the the national park surrounding uh, Gunung Tangkubang Perahu and yeah. Gunung Burangrang and this area all around there. Um, could you just imagine, uh, I mean, I've trekked through almost uh, the entirety of that area over the last eight years, but could you just imagine how much of an ecotourism bonanza that would yeah. be? I mean, Absolutely. it is so remarkably spectacular yeah. um, that uh, both for local tourism, if it was managed well and managed sustainably, it would bring great um, prosperity to this entire region. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's let down by corruption. Yeah. It's let let down by a lack of management, yeah. um, a lack of um, planning and coordination, and all of the things that frustrate us about Indonesia. And and what I have is a lot of hope that eventually, um, and hopefully, um, in hopefully soon, uh, than sooner rather than later that the next generation of more uh, aware, more educated, um, more sustainably focused young Indonesian people will drive a lot of these solutions. Yeah. So I, I have some kind of hope, and I, and I think that that's the point, is that um, I, I see great uh, prosperity coming out of 
Indonesia's environmental sustainability. Yeah. But the way that we're going, um, not so. I, I mean, I, I remember um, the first time I went to the summit of um, Rinjani in Lombok. Yeah. One of the most spectacular places of the world I've ever seen, mm. right? Out of 103 countries that I've visited, it still marvels me, the the diversity and beauty of Indonesia. Maybe but, maybe explain what it is. It's a mountain. Yeah, Rinjani is a, a mountain that's 3,726 meters above sea level. <laughs> that's very um, specific. <laughs> it's very specific. Uh, I've climbed it uh, four or five times now. Um, it's a spectacular climb. Yeah. And the view is just astonishing. Yeah. Um, and uh, the first time I was there, I was just miserably appalled at literally tons and tons of trash mm. that was left by tour operators yeah. and others who just go up there, they take big groups, they just throw the stuff over the cliff. Yeah. Um, and there was a backlash from the international community who sort of said, um, spread the word out, just everyone stop going there. Yeah. Just vote with our feet until they deal with the sustainability of that mountain. No one go. Mm. Um, and it's what happened. And then um, in March or April, one season about five or six years ago, uh, they sent the military up there, like thousands of troops. Wow. And they just cleaned the place up. There was a lot of stuff that they couldn't get to. Yeah. Um, but they took something like 80 ton of rubbish. Wow. Off the mountainside. Um, and Mount, this is... That's like Mount Everest proportions. Almost. Yeah, it was. <laughs> and this is the frustrating thing. Yeah. It's such a spectacular place. It would be such a tourist destination. Um, and it's just an eminently solvable problem. Yeah. A little bit of training... Licensing of uh, tour guides, you know, provide the best ones with, you know, like um, a good, um, sustainable job. Um, and, and that's what I hope for. I hope that many of these things. Um, Indonesia has a strategy for 10 new Bali's. 10 new uh, Bali's, yeah. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a project to kind of replicate the development success of Bali. Yeah. Um, and there are spectacular places, North Sumatra. Aceh and Danau Toba in uh, in the north. Yeah. Although although I wouldn't call Bali the perfect uh, blueprint for a for no an, for an in, island. no not in that sense I yeah. guess um, and 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 the island not, I mean don't get me wrong the island's yeah. beautiful it's just the way it's been commercialized it's just sure and it's uh, it's a bit revolting many parts of it yeah, um, yeah. and but what what you cannot debate is the standard the reductions in poverty in Bali yeah. um, the rise in the standard of levi, li, living the kind of opportunities in employment, in sustainable employment, yeah. um, have, been, have been quite phenomenal. Uh, about 70% of women in Indonesia are what, what we call vulnerably employed, mm. i.e. they have no protections. Yeah. Um, uh, they are subsistence workers you know, in paddy fields or in a warung or collecting recycled waste or one of those things. And, and this is... This is the segment of the workforce that needs to uh, be moved into more sustainable and more humane employment. Yeah. And I think that, that projects like this have got a lot of hope for that. Yeah, okay. Mm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, my, my personal perspective on these matters is like, I more or less just watched it from the sidelines thinking that um, Indonesia is a, is a place for potential, but at the same time with a lot of um, self-inflicted wounds or barriers if, if you want so so um like in a, in a sense it's like um and that's huge, probably even being kind 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a huge it's They're chopping off limbs at times. It's uh, it's such a rich place, like yeah. in terms of uh, commodity, in terms of human capital, in terms of natural ecological beauty. It's it, it got it it has everything. Yeah. There's this um, perfect perfect earth theory, which I've heard uh, uh, from I don't know from I think NASA actually kind of created that, like that the perfect planet would be would be like Indonesia. Like mm. it's just the entire planet would be like Indonesia. And if it's well managed, uh, despite having so many islands everywhere, it would be it, it would yeah. be just a wonderful place. Sure. Yeah. So um so if Indonesia would be the entire world, it could be perfect. But of course you cannot copy that because then you was you would also get all mm. the downsides with it and then it would be a, just yeah. a hellhole. Have you heard of David Suzuki? He's a he's a renowned uh, environmentalist um, television personality from Canada, actually. Yeah. Um, and uh, I had a serendipitous, um, meeting with him in Kenya, actually. I think it was Mombasa, actually. We got stuck in a, um, in a hotel lobby waiting for transportation to the airport and our flights were, uh, were both canceled. And, um, and we chatted for hours and hours about the issue of Indonesia and its environmental sustainability. And, uh, it depressed me a little bit because he have he's kind of wandered off into the view that um, uh, human beings are just um, we're destined for our own decimation. Yeah. That the world, the earth will continue, but it probably won't involve humans. Mm. Um, we will probably end up annihilating ourselves out of our own uh, greed and ignorance. Um, well, yeah. I mean, if you if you follow the current current trajectory or current trajectories on certain certain issues you, you would you could tell yeah you would you would it's definitely po- i like to think that see. i like to think that um that we will i i know that we've arrived at several tipping points that are a little bit tragic yeah. but i would like to believe that there's a solution to some of this but i think that uh indonesia has got some some things that are more urgent than political actors at the moment believe yeah. that they are. Yeah. And um, and one of those is the rate of deforestation. It's yeah. alarming. Yeah. Um, every For the hour that we've been talking, um, there have been two football fields illegally logged, and illegally. that goes on 24 hours a day yeah. in Indonesia. Um, that That's the thing that alarms me the most is mm. um, it's not irreversible, but, um, but it's... We're talking about um, peat forests um, that took literally a thousand years to develop. At least. At least. Yeah. So, and and a, a square meter mm. of um, of peat forest under the ground is thousands of tons of carbon. Yeah. Yeah. That have taken. And for those who don't know how it works, of course, it's a simple thing that that. Uh, that we teach our children when we're walking in the jungle that the leaves fall down out of the trees, uh, branches fall and they drop, and um, and that carbon gets locked in as that compresses over tens and hundreds and thousands of years. It gets pressed down and down and down and, and degrades into peat. Yeah. Um, and that carbon is trapped under the ground there. And, of course, when you um, whole slash and burn those forests... Um, those peat fires burn underneath the soil for years, releasing mm. that carbon yeah. um, into the atmosphere, and this is what um, this is what alarms me the most. Is yeah. that is a problem that has to 
that has to be taken under control. There's a great YouTube clip from several years ago where Harrison Ford um, interviewed uh, the the Minister for Forestry, the Forestry Minister, and uh, it it haunts me, you know, his excuse, we're a young democracy, we still haven't, we're just new at this kind of, which is... Which is not really, which is not really the case. It's about as old as Singapore is yeah. in that sense. Um, depending on where you take the starting, if you take uh, if you take the era of of reformasi as the beginning of Indonesia's democracy, um, then then perhaps there's a point. But just to just to to continually uh, flout this as an excuse for something that's largely irreversible yeah. is something that bothers me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, this is the thing. Like, if you if you don't have a quick solution, then obviously either either you are um, uh, becoming an expert in creating excuses yeah. for why you can't do it. And and the solutions. And here's the here's yeah. the thing about the solutions for Indonesia's um, environmental problems: uh, renewable energy, um, deforestation, um, uh, protection of marine ecosystems, uh, and uh, and these kinds of things. The solutions are actually massive job creators. They're massive uh, opportunities for Indonesia. Um, but unfortunately, the corruption is at the heart of um, not allowing those solutions to come to life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Indonesia's energy is run by coal. Yeah. Um, I've seen with my own eyes the enormous geothermal resources that exist in many parts of the, Indonesia. Indonesia, well, this is the thing. I was surprised to hear that Indonesia is one of the biggest geothermal energy producers in the world right now. Right, and, and, it's, and it's still a relatively it's, it's small a, proportion. Yeah, it's, it's tiny. Tiny proportion. The, the it's entire less country, than 1%. The entire country could run on geothermal energy easily. And it was certainly a combination of, of solar, particularly yeah. in the outlying sunny places yeah. um, in the eastern part of Indonesia where yeah. there's still a lot of land. Definitely wind in different yeah. parts of Indonesia. Definitely tidal. Yeah. Definitely um, hydroelectric. Um, and, and any other sorts of... Combination is, of course. It's just a, it's just a, it's just a problem of financing it, right? Well, the, no, it's, it's I, I, it's largely the monopoly of uh, the coal lobby. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, of Like in many other parts of the world, um, but I, but I certainly, I hold out hope mm. that um, that these solutions will have life in in the generation that's coming up now well either these problems either we solve these problems or these problems solve us you know so there's either or there's nothing in between mm. you know so this is kind of where we have to kind of understand that we are yeah we're literally um cutting off the branch we're sitting on not not only the branch we're sitting on we're actually kind of uprooting the entire tree we're sitting on i think that there's a lot there's a lot of work that the international community could could do to help solve these problems mm. as well yeah. I, I don't think that um, that Western developed countries should be <clears throat> allowing importation of timber products that come from these locations. Yeah. And, and I don't just mean furniture like these kinds of sort of products. I'm talking about paper pulp and paper products and these kinds of um, things. But I also think it might get to the point where that there are, um, listen, economic sanctions against the perpetrators of, of deforestation. And... Uh, 
I mean, these multinational companies are very adept at creating a degree of separation between themselves and the perpetrators, yeah, right? Yeah. We see it all the time. It's not us who fills the land. It's small landholders who yeah, we yeah, just yeah. buy their palm oil yeah, or so on and so on. But I think that there needs to be um, some work done uh, by international governments to kind of create um, uh, sticks and carrots. Yeah. Mm. Yet or still, Indonesia is a country of opportunity. Yeah, so, Undeniably. Um, undeniably, yeah. I mean, I like it here also not just because of the weather and uh, other beautiful things, but also like I can, I can conduct my business here in a way that would be a lot harder in Europe for me. Sure. Like, or the way I personally do business, the way I personally kind of uh, interact with my environment. For me, Indonesia feels like easier more accessible yeah. uh, sort of simpler in a sense because mm. you have you have um like i don't know if it has to do with the way things are kind of run over here but for me it feels like it's um it's a bit like going from 10th grade school back to 5th grade school and suddenly everything is much easier and but you have the knowledge of a 10th grader do you know what i mean yeah i i i do i understand it's a little it's a little more in your field of enterprise that's probably truer than for mine, yeah. uh, which uh, requires a lot of attention to regulation and, um, and everything that we do needs to be um, at an international standard of compliance yeah. and defensibility. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit more problematic for us in yeah. that sense, that it probably is for you. But you're right. The remarkable, one of the remarkably wonderful things about Indonesia is its youthfulness. Fifty yeah. percent of the population are aged uh, under thirty. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and that's um, that's a demographic bonus that um, that should absolutely be um, capitalized upon. Yeah, it, it definitely gives you a different uh, like feel for life over here, like compared to. In my case, yeah. Germany. When I, every time I'm back, it's like I'm I'm in a. Yeah, I'm just surrounded by by elderly people. Mm. Like I go into a shopping mall. I mean, maybe uh, larger cities like Berlin or Hamburg are are, are different. Like are the exception. But as yeah. soon as you go into the rural areas, it's just fifty plus on on average. On average, right. yeah. Over, whereas over here, you go into the rural areas and it's like, I don't know, twenty or thirty years old. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Very different. And I, I, I mean, Indonesia still has got a long way to go in terms of longevity and life expectancy. Yeah, though. that's it's, okay. Uh, um, tobacco has um, has and continues to be right up there in terms of my top five um, problems confronting Indonesia, and not just from the health aspects as well, but it, it's a devastating um, curse that the big international tobacco companies have left Indonesia with. Yeah. Um, tobacco is the, the the number two household expense for the country, for the entire country. Number two. Number two next to rice. Mm. So the average Indonesian family will spend more on tobacco by a factor of 10 than they would on nutrition, protein, healthcare, education, any of these uh, other elements as well. Um, it's also the leading cause of poverty as well. Imagine this, 50 million Indonesian men mm. spend more than 80% of their income on tobacco alone. Yeah, that's a, that's a 
So, Great business opportunity. So yeah, <laughs> well, listen, it's a business opportunity that the tobacco companies have already exploited, and they're well on on the way to it. Yeah, it's um, absolutely the most profitable business in Indonesia. Yeah, um, uh, Indonesia's wealthiest men are all in the tobacco industry. Yeah, the top five. Uh, all yeah, the, they're all like, they're all coming from tobacco. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they're they're nowhere on on any Forbes list, right? For some reason. Oh no, they're they're all on the Forbes. Oh, they are. Yeah, they're all there. Mm. Um, they're they're big players. They're multi billionaires mm. uh, several times over. Certainly um, now, of course, uh, we don't really know the true nature of their wealth as well. I read one report where the tobacco companies alone in Indonesia, um, uh, will, you know, this issue of tax amnesty is fascinating one. Um, every few years since I've been living here, the Indonesian government have sort of said, if you haven't been declaring anything as tax, we'll give you an amnesty. Pay mm. a tiny, tiny, like half a percent yeah. uh, fine and you can repatriate the money here or declare it and therefore use it. Yeah, yeah. Um, the tobacco companies alone consistently are declaring billions and billions of dollars yeah. in, in income that they have not necessarily declared during those tax amnesties. So we don't know the true nature of their stuff, but we can do some rough calculations and we know that um, that it's uh, the, the, the tobacco industry is roughly, tobacco sales are, are in the order of um, quarter of a billion US dollars a day. Yeah, yeah. wow. So 100 million smokers spending on average uh, like two packets of cigarettes a day at something like, like uh, 20,000 rupiah. Yeah, two dollars-ish. Um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and and do the math on that. Yeah. That that takes us to an extraordinary amount of income. So we know that it's there. But it's um, it's the leading cause of childhood malnutrition, yeah. of stunting. Uh, well of that poverty. alone that alone is a topic on its own. Sure. I guess I think like around this whole smoking and health. Because mm. we, 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 we haven't spoken about health and we haven't spoken about like the entire like uh, effects of the pandemic on Indonesia because that's very interesting as well. But I guess that may be something we should do on another time. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. So, because that's, I, I think that would be at least one hour, like another hour yeah. uh, of uh, talking because. Yeah, tobacco is a whole topic in itself. You, you've, you've done research and all this. Yeah, right? cool, yeah. sure. We, yeah. we work for, uh, for a couple of years. Uh, on on a variety of issues related to tobacco, and I think we should save it for another time. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, Sean, it's been a great pleasure having you here. Um, Thanks, I, Ali. It's uh, hope... it's nice. There's a lot to talk about. Yeah, Hopefully my we very first balanced. My very first uh, podcast. What do you think? Yeah, guys? to many more. So, uh, uh, maybe... aren't you supposed to do those uh, default things? Uh, don't forget to click the. <laughs> yeah, do that uh, for me. The don't forget to click the subscribe button down below, and there's some other thing, a bell or buzzer notifications. Oh, the, yeah, the bell notification. Because I think it does something, right? If you click on notifications. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. if if you if you click on that, you get a push notification if. If, I never if we upload bell, a video, yeah. you get a push notification. So subscribe and uh, click the bell button so you get notified when part two is coming out. Yeah, we're going to talk about some more interesting stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Ali. Yeah, thank you very much. Cheers. Oh, no, sorry. How are you going to do that? Like, <laughs> where's the hand sanitizer? Give me the hand sanitizer. Okay. Hand sanitizer! <laughs> <laughs>